Amen. Whenever you guys are ready. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit right now to just come. Fill my head, Lord God. Lead me by your spirit, the things I say and share. Bring things back to remembrance. Show me what to highlight. Father, open up the hearts of all those listening, whether listening here today or whether they listen later on by, by uh, the, the soundtrack or CD or, or MPEG, whatever they're doing these days, Lord. Whoever's listening, may they be blessed by your spirit in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, we're going to get back to the book of Hebrews. And as you recall, we were in the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews. And I took a little time to really explain verses 16 to 22, but especially verses 16, starting there, where it talks about, it uses a term, testator. And I want, and it sounds like a fine point, but it's a point that needed to be made, that even though a lot of translations will read something like this, and I'm, I'm reading from the New King James, Verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it had no power at all while the testator lives. Now, a lot of translations translate that way. They really do. King James, New King James, lots of them. And it's understandable that the translators are seeking to bring the meaning of the Greek that this was originally written in to our English understanding that they sometimes will look for the cultural things to the group they're writing to in hopes to help them to understand the text. The problem with that is sometimes when you jump out of a time period where things had a certain meaning and you try to apply it to something 1,800 years later, you could possibly pick something that might strip away the, the, the oomph or the context of the original and what it meant when it was written. And this is one of those cases where the translators, thinking in a, a Western mindset, try to get, a, get things into understanding of last will and testament, something we're all familiar with in the Western world, that in the Western world, we understand that if you have a lot of stuff, or even a little stuff, mostly you think you have a lot of stuff, and you're getting up in age, and you're thinking, man, I might die, and I don't want my kids fighting over my stuff and cause family conflict, so I'm going to, and I want to make sure certain people get certain things, so I'm going to write my last will and testament. And I write it, and I get lawyers, and they look over, and they agree to it. And, and, and it doesn't come into effect until I die. After I die, then the kids can line up and see, what did dad leave me? What did he give me? Did he give me the car? Who gets the house? I've always liked his Hot Wheels. You know, can I have his Hot Wheel collection? Can I have his books? I have a lot of books, believe me, a lot of. I actually do have a Hot Wheel collection, by the way. A lot of books. And, and you know, all these, what, you know, that's what you think. Do I get mom's crochet stuff? What do I get? And so, so when the translators, they put it in that context. 
But that context is wrong. That context is totally out of the context of the text itself and the times that this was written. Because this is not about testament. This is about covenant. The word that's translated testament here is the same word that's used right before that talks about the covenants, that there's a new covenant that's going to be made. That's the context. The context is covenant. And in a Hebrew mindset, how were covenants made? That's what we talked about. Well, we know how they were made. We know one clear example. First of all, you know it from historical records, but we also know from the Scriptures. We know when Abram comes on the scene and God wants to make covenant with him, we have the whole story of God telling him, take some animals, cut them in half, put them apart, so they spread apart, and then it says, you know, he fights all that to keep the the crows and stuff from vultures from eating up these animals he's, he's cut in half, he's sacrificed. And then in this case, God put a deep sleep, he fell asleep, but then a God comes down in, a, in the form of a smoking torch. And that torch comes down and passes between the pieces of the animal. Now that's weird. I mean, when's the last time did you go to make a deal to buy a car, did you bring some animal, you know, and cut it in half and have the uh, guy that was selling your car, the car dealer, the dealersman or salesman, to walk between the pieces of the animal? We don't do that today. But that was a very common practice. It was very serious. That's why the Hebrew word for covenant is the word berit, which means to cut, to cut. That's where the idea came from, was cutting the animals into two pieces. And there was a couple of ideas that went to that. First was to let you know that something had to shed its blood in order for you to come into this relationship, this, this friendship, this deal. If you, when you went into this covenant, it wasn't just a matter of an agreement, but it was a joining of lives together. There was a coming together. Years ago, Dan Juster, the the founder of Tikkun and, 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 and apostolic oversight for us, Dan used to teach about what he called the covenant of strong friendship, that throughout Scripture, that's what God was looking for, of the splitting of those animals and you become one, where everything that I have is now yours and whatever I, you have is now mine. There's a sharing, there's a unity, there's a oneness that comes together between the two parties. There was also the idea that if you broke the covenant, what happened to the animal? May it be done unto you. Yeah, you're not so quick to go into covenant with people now, are you? When you realize the seriousness of it. And as I said before, when God passed through the pieces, Abraham got up and he did a, the most funky dance you could think of. He was excited. He knew what that meant. God can't die. And yet he went through the pieces. He knew this is a done deal. This promise he's made to me will happen. So that's the real biblical idea of covenant. There has to be a shedding of the blood. Not the parties that are making the covenant have to die in order to get things. But there was a sacrificial victim. An animal usually is the case. 
that we know with the Mosaic law, Moses took the blood of bulls and goats. They sacrificed a bull and goat. He took that blood. He sprinkled it not only on the, the book that was written, the commandments, but he sprinkled it on the people. How would you like that the next time you go to buy your next house? That, you know, you get an animal, you sacrifice it, and you take the blood. You know, you just tell the salesperson, just one second here. And all of a sudden, you know, you get the blood and you just sprinkle it on the guy. Right there and on the covenant. Right there. So what are you doing? I'm making sure this is a done deal. We're entering into covenant here. I don't want you backing out out of some clause or agreement or because the laws have changed in Congress. No, 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 no. We're going for a strong friendship deal here. It's like marriage. That's that intimacy of, of relationship. So when we reduce it to last will and testament, we remove the idea of the covenantal nature that God is calling us to. So if you do the study, you don't have to trust me in it. You can do your own study today. It's really easy. There's so much stuff out there. You can go to the right website. You can get all this for yourself. You can go out and get all your Bible. You can get... 30, 40 translations on one little phone if you wanted to. But you can do the research. You can get a Greek interlinear. And you'll see a couple of interesting things about your interlinear. Even the Strong's Concordance will bear this out. So when it says, for a testament is in force after men are dead, the first thing you're going to realize when you look at your Greek interlinear, there is no word for man there. It doesn't say man at all. The translators added that. It's not what it says. It, says not, it doesn't even say when men are dead. It doesn't say that. First of all, the word there is covenant. For covenant is in force, it doesn't say the word after men is not there in the Greek. It literally means that which is dead. It's just one word, the thing that's dead. It doesn't mean man. It just says the thing that's dead. That both scholars would say that the thing that's dead is what they refer to as the sacrificial victim. So a covenant is enforced after what? After the sacrificial animal is slain. After something's put to death. The sacrificial victim. And that's what the word means when it says since it has no power at all, while the testator, scholarship says the word testator is not the one who made the will, but the word testator is the thing that you sacrifice or the animal that you sacrifice, and in this case, the Messiah that is sacrificed. So the right understanding of this is saying, look, covenant is not in force until Yeshua, who's the sacrifice, who is the one that sacrificed you, was nailed to the tree and put to death. As long as he's walking around doing miracles and signs and wonder, even when he says this is the blood of the new covenant I'm poured out for you, no new covenant has been ratified until his blood is poured out on the altar, until his blood is, is put down. That's what we have to see. So I say, you said to you, it's a fine point, but I think it's a very important point to bring this back into the original understanding and get away from the idea of last will and testament. Yes, Yeshua died, but he didn't write a will for you. He is the sacrificial atonement to fulfill the covenant that his father made with the house of Israel and Judah. See, the father comes to the house of Israel and Judah and says, I'm going to make covenant with you. But where's the blood atonement for that covenant? My son, 
who I even told Abraham that I would provide a ram for this. Long ago I said I would do it. And so now I'm fulfilling that and I'm bringing my son forth as the sacrificial victim to shed his blood on the altar in order to ratify this covenant. So it's a done deal. You got it? It's a done deal. This is done. The going through the bloodshed. This is, de- this is good stuff. And nobody's going to come in and bring their lawyers and attorneys and try to dispute what pieces they get from this. This is not a last will and testament. This is a covenant that God has established who is very much alive to this day. And the great thing about this covenant is different from any other covenant because we look through time and we see bulls and goats and turtle doves and all kind of animals being sacrificed. And here's one thing we know is about those animals. When they're dead, they're dead. And they stay dead. But Yeshua's sacrifice speaks of a greater thing because he doesn't stay dead. He's raised up and made alive and exalted to the right hand of the Father, far above all principalities and power. Oh, my goodness, what kind of sacrifice atonement is this, that the very thing sacrificed is resurrected, made alive to be the one to make intercession for you day and night, 24-7, 365. See, we get this back in perspective. We go, whoa, this is a better covenant than before. And so we see the context of this just by reading the next verse. For verse 19, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the Torah, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So he's letting us know this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about covenant, and in the Mosaic covenant, there's the blood of these animals. In the new covenant, he's going to show us it's the blood of the Messiah, who's Lord of all. He's saying that Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. These are almost so much like the words of Yeshua. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. These are the same words. You got to get the weight of that. He's speaking it out. He said, this is what's taking place. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. The shedding of blood is central. Now, in modern Judaism, if you, if you meet with a Jewish person who does not believe in Yeshua, they will say, oh, no, no, you're misunderstanding. Judaism doesn't believe in blood atonement. We don't believe that something else or someone else can shed blood. We, we think it's through prayer and through study of Torah and, and good works. This is how you, you, you get right before God. And all that blood atonement stuff, that, that's something that the Christians came up with. That's a Gentile thing. Oh, really? Well, it's Moses who sprinkled the blood on the people. It's God from the very beginning that, that we see that an animal was sacrificed to clothe Adam and Eve. It's after Noah comes off the ark that an animal is sacrificed and God receives that and it's pleasing to him. 
And he, at that point, had even established the difference between clean and unclean even before Moses was born. That throws people sometimes. Oh, you know, that clean and unclean stuff, that was for the Jewish people. But then how did Noah know all about it? Because he had a certain number of clean animals were brought and a certain number of unclean. He had more clean animals than he had unclean as far as the numbers. In fact, if he had sacrificed an unclean animal since they only came in two, that animal would cease to exist on the planet because it wouldn't be able to go on and procreate. But we don't ever see in Scripture from God that unclean animals are ever sacrificed upon the altar. God never says, oh, that's a great, great smell for me. Somebody throw a pig on the altar. No, that was considered, you know, that you were defiling the temple if you threw an unclean animal on the altar. You can come in with some frogs on a stick and cook them up and say, this is unto the Lord. God said, no, 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 that's unclean. I don't deal with unclean. God made that distinction even before Moses was born. So God has these things, and it all has to do with blood and atonement. All throughout Scripture, we're seeing this blood atonement as part of Israel, part of the life that they're living. I mean, look at the whole Levitical system. The whole system is all about blood and atonement and shedding blood. And what about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? And if blood is not important, what's wrong with the Hasidic Jews who every year will take a chicken and say, this is my covering, and have it killed? And they give it to the poor, but they have, they said, this is my, they wave it over their head and said, this is my atonement. Oh, we don't believe in blood atonement for the day. This is my atonement. Oh, we don't believe in blood atonement for that. Oh, this is my, this chicken is my atonement. Why? Because they know at Yom Kippur that that was the time that the high priest went the most holy of all to bring the blood to take care of the sins of the nation. It's hogwash to say that Judaism is not a religion concerning blood atonement. At the, at the core of the Mosaic Covenant is blood atonement. Without shedding of blood, there is no atonement. It's important, so don't let anybody trick you with that. Tell them, look, the blood is important. The blood is central to being cleansed and being made holy. This is the way God has designed it. He wants us to see how serious our sin is, that something that was full of life had to be sacrificed on the altar so that we would be made whole. It is to bring the sadness. And when you went and you saw this beautiful animal and you laid your hands on that animal and confessed your sins and you watched the priest kill that animal because of your sin, it is to provoke in you a certain sense of humility and repentance to realizing your sin could only be paid for by the life of another. Oh, this is so important. It's central to us. Oh, yes, we love prayer. Oh, yes, we love study of Torah. Why do we have talking Torah? We love the study of Torah. We love mitzvot. You should do good works, not to get to heaven, but because heaven's already come to live in you. But make no mistake about it. The only way to be right before God is through the sacrifice that he has offered. And that sacrifice is his son. That's the way to be made holy and set apart before God. So he says on, verse 23, Therefore it was necessary 
that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You hear that? It was necessary that the copies, see the mosaic system, the tabernacle, is a shadow. It's a copy of the heavenly. And it was necessary that, that even the working model had to have blood shed for it because it's representing the eternal. Okay? But he says, but the eternal, the heavenly things, better sacrifices than blood of bulls and goats. Bloods and bull, the good, bulls and goats stay dead, but the sacrifice of Yeshua, he's perfect and holy in every way. Never committed sin. He can identify with us completely because he took on humanity. He can identify with his father because he is Emmanuel, God with us. He can identify with the deity. He can identify with the humanity. He is a perfect mediator between God and man. But make no mistakes about it. His atonement is of a greater weight of glory than the blood of bulls and goats, which could never take away sin. But he goes on and says concerning Yeshua, for Messiah has not entered the holy place made with hands, mean with men, the ones here on earth, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He didn't go into the working model. He went into the real deal. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the end of the ages, what this writer is realizing, you know, in Judaism is the idea that we live in this age, and then we're looking forward to the age to come. And the writer of Hebrews understood that they were transitioning from this age to the age that's coming, the world to come. And so he's saying at the end of the ages, in other words, all of this age is coming in. This world is coming to an end for a breaking in of God's world into this world. That's what we're looking for. When the, when they, when the disciple says, will you restore the kingdom at this time? They understood that was a breaking in of the world to come. This is why Yeshua said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it is breaking into this world. Repent, God's kingdom's coming. When the king was far, far away and he wasn't breaking in, you might be able to be a little relaxed. But when the word comes is that the king's at the gate and is about to be opened up to him for him to come in, you better repent. You better wake up out of your slumber and get ready because the king is coming, and he's not coming to be nailed to a tree again. He's coming to reign and to rule and to establish his rule on the earth. And so we got to wake up. The king is breaking in. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. See, the blood of bulls and goats could never put away sin. That's why they were constantly being sacrificed over and over again, even the high priest had to offer up sacrifices for himself because he wasn't sinless. But Yeshua was sinless. 
The scripture says he was tempted with sin, yet he never sinned. Tempted like us. He took on humanity. He felt the pull of sin, but he never surrendered to it. He was a perfect lamb, a perfect sacrifice, holy and complete, completely fulfilling the Father's will and everything. His own Father says, I am well pleased in all in you and all that you do. He's perfect. And so when he comes to make atonement, he doesn't deal with animals. He takes his own blood, which is eternal. And he's taking it into the real tabernacle, not the one that's made to look like it, not the one that's a shadow, a copy. And since his blood is eternal and perfect, and he has the testimony of being raised from the dead, his blood is ever ever able to make atonement for you. Ever, forever. He doesn't need to go die on the cross anymore. That's not necessary. He did it once for all. It goes on in the reads here. And it's appointed to men to die once, but after this, the judgment. That is the lot of mankind. I'm sorry you don't get to come back as a, a, a dog or a puppy or, or a princess or a king or something else and give it another shot. You get one time at this life. As one guy said, life is not a rehearsal. You make of this life that you've been given. You get one time. You don't get to get that and say, well, I, I didn't do so well on that one. Uh, put me in another body. Let me try it again. I think I'll do better. Oh, no, 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 no. This is it. This is one of the things we warn with people. Say, hey, you get one shot at this thing. One shot. You will die. I don't believe in God. It doesn't matter whether you believe in God or don't believe in God. It doesn't matter what state it is for your faith. The fact of the matter is there's a point of the time for you to die. And you will have to give account of the life that you live. And God's very thorough of what you know and what you don't know. He knows what dreams he's given you. He knows what people have given you a track. He knows what people have spoken to you. He knows what you heard on the radio. You might be listening to this right now, and God's going to take my words, and he'll say, oh, 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 Pastor Ralph was telling you there's a point to once man to die. And you want me to stand before him? Well, I didn't know. Oh, let's roll back the tape. Let's go back. December the 30th, right here, you heard it. God will hold you accountable for what you know. And he's perfect at it. He makes no mistakes at all. But you're appointed to die, and then after that, you have to stand before God in judgment. Well, so did Yeshua as appointed for him to die. Like anyone, he was taking on humanity. He was a man. A time was appointed for him to go to death. Except when he went to death, he was perfect and holy in every way. He presented himself as an atoning sacrifice. So when the judgment time came, he was able to fully pay the penalty that would have been put on mankind. Because he says, I'm here to represent all of mankind. I'm taking upon myself the, the sin of the world. I'm becoming sin so that others will not have to bear that. Anybody who comes to me will be forgiven. So he had to be judged, and he was judged perfectly as he put himself as an atoning sacrifice. It says, so the Messiah was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. 
Yeshua gave of his life freely. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Sometimes people want to argue, you know, and, and one of the things Messianic Judaism fights against, you know, is sadly throughout history people go around and make the statement, well, the Jews killed Jesus. And they use it as a reason to persecute and to do harm things to the Jewish people. But Yeshua says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. If you want to say who killed Jesus, some will say everybody did. Because he died for your sins, whether Jew or Gentile. In the book of Acts, it says that not only were the Jewish people involved, but it says Herod, the Gentiles, the captain of the guards, they all had a hand in this matter. But when it's all said and done, they couldn't lay a finger on him unless he said it was okay. He made it very clear that any second, all he had to do is say, Father, help. And legions of angels were going to release to help him. Imagine the restraint that Yeshua offered. One time I got into a debate with a particular Jews for Judaism guy, and he was trying to make his point. He said, well, I'm not so impressed with Yeshua. Ralph, I said, well, what's the deal? He said, well, you know, have you ever heard the story of Rabbi Akiba? I said, yeah, I know his story well. Well, you know what happened to him? I said, yeah, eventually the Romans caught him, and they tortured him. And, they, and, and, and I said, he said, how did he die? I said, as he was dying with his last breath, he said the Shema. He said, well, look, Yeshua, on the other hand, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Akiba said, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Which one was faithful to the end, trusting God? And I smiled at him, and I said, I got a couple of answers for you. And I'm going to give them to you. I said, but first I'm going to give you one that's a natural one. I'm not going to explain the scriptures to you at this point, but I want you to understand something. I said, imagine a little boy, very tiny. Maybe like a two-year-old. And imagine we get the biggest guys in our congregation. My brother here, me, Brandon over there, some guys a little bit size to us. And we grab that two-year-old. And we torment him. And that two-year-old says the Shema. That'd be great as he's being tormented. Because he's helpless. There's nothing he can do with us three big guys. He just knows there's nothing I can do here. They're stronger. They're bigger. Nothing they can do. He went, okay, what's your point? So what if that two-year-old was like a superhero? He's like little Superman, but super baby. He's got laser vision. He's faster than a locomotive. He can leap tall buildings in a single bound. 
He can stop a speeding bullet. He can just take us and toss us around, and we grab him. He's like, well, he'll just wipe you out. I said, but what if he chose not to? What if he chose, even though he had the power to, with like that to wipe us out, he was so meek and humble in his love for us that he chose not to use his power to wipe us out. I said, see, my friend, Akiba had no choice in the matter. The Romans had taken him, they had tied him, they had wrapped him, and they set him on fire. But Yeshua, the entire time after he was arrested, knew at any second, knew at any second, if he just says, Abba, help, help was on the way. But he allowed himself to be beaten, spat upon, pushed around, and eventually hung on a tree. And at any long time along the way, he could have said, when they said, if you are the Messiah, come off of that thing, he could have said, I am, I am the Messiah, bam, and came off. But he chose not to use that power. I said, you see the difference? He said, oh, well, what about my God, my God? I said, Psalm 22. I said, you, better, you know better than anybody. That's a messianic psalm. These are the words that come forth from Messiah. And if you read the whole thing, it talks about not a bone be broken. It talks about him being a sacrifice. Read the whole Psalm 22. Yes, it starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then it goes on to not a bone will be broken, that he will give himself as atonement, that he will give himself as a sacrifice. Yeshua was pointing everybody who was trying to make sense of what was going on, that this guy who healed the sick, raised the dead, walked on water, all kinds of signs and wonders, and now he is nailed to the tree, and that guy, we don't understand. He helped others. Why won't he help himself? And he goes, my God. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's pointing. Everybody who's a good Torah studier knew the scriptures went, that is the messianic psalm of the sacrifice of the Messiah. I said, that's what he was doing. He went, hmm. He was silent. I prayed to this day those words sunk in. Yeshua is our sacrifice. He's our atonement. He gave of himself to bring us into this covenant so we would not have to carry sin in our lives. That's the point. It's a better covenant, better sacrifice. Our sacrifice is no longer dead. Our sacrifice is alive, and he gives life to us. And that life is to empower us to walk in righteousness and holiness. That's what God desires. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Yeshua, help us to understand these truths. Help us to incorporate them into our lives. Help, them, help us to look at sin in a new way through the eyes of your eyes where you sacrifice your son that you will make us holy and righteous. That the blood of Yeshua cleanses us. It's a one-time thing to set us free, Father. May we see this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Could the worship team please return? Thank you.